Well, welcome everyone uh, to today's webinar, reporting on results from a national survey on chaplaincy demand conducted by Gallup and with support from the Templeton Religion Trust. My name is Michael Skaggs. I'm Director of Programs for the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab. Let me just say a few words on behalf of the lab and then we'll get started. So first, like most of our events, this is being recorded. And so if you miss a point or you want to come back to something review, you can always do that later. You'll get that recording here in the next couple of days. When you get that recording in your email, there's a link to a very brief survey. Please just take a minute or so to fill that out. It helps us plan future events and make sure that we're responding to what you want to know about. Uh, let me introduce our guests very briefly, and then I will hand it over to them. We're joined today by Wendy Cadge, or we will be in a minute, uh, who is founder of the lab and Barbara Mandel, professor of humanistic social sciences at Brandeis University. Marilyn Barnes, director of pastoral care at Virginia Commonwealth University Medical Center. Amy Lawton, postdoctoral uh, scholar in the lab. Jessica Hamer-Martinez, associate research scientist and senior data analyst at the University of Arizona. And Taylor Winfield, SSHRC postdoc at McGill University. So thank you all uh, for joining us. Amy, we will we will skip ahead a little bit to your uh, your analysis and your summary of the findings. But let me just sort of set the stage here. Uh, this this survey and this report are all part of a larger project uh, that we are conducting with. Templeton Religion Trust on what we call covenantal pluralism, which has to do with the role of religion uh, in society. And so we wanted to know as a key part of this, how do people actually uh, engage with the chaplains? How do they interact with the chaplains? When does that happen? Uh, what kind of chaplains? Where does it happen? And so this is sort of a, a, a key way of establishing that. And then we're going to move forward from there. So Amy, tell us about the, the survey, the report, uh, and what we are going to learn today. All right, great. Thank you, Michael. Um, hi, everyone. I'm uh, very happy to be here. I've been working on this report since I came on board in April, and um, it's really a it's really a pleasure and a joy to be able to share some of the really interesting findings we've had. So my plan today is I'm going to spend just a couple minutes sort of setting the stage for you with what we asked in this survey. And um, then I'm going to give you eight of the headlines, so to speak, the eight of the top findings that we're um, interested in exploring more in the future. And uh, I'll suppose one of the looming questions. Um, once you read the report, you'll probably come up with other questions uh, as well that, that we'll be happy to answer. Um, but I, I have a question for our panelists um, about kind of an unusual finding that we we have and we're ready to address. So I'll start by um, sharing my screen. And uh, this is the uh, part where I'll just describe what we did with the survey and how we did the analysis. So this was an online survey. Uh, it was fielded by the Gallup organization um, in March of this year. And it was completed by over a thousand adults with internet access in the United States. Um, this is a very uh, robust representative sample. Um, we were very happy with, with the number of people who completed it. And the margin of error for the full sample is um, plus or minus 3.29. So keep in mind that when we're talking about sub sets of the population, uh, that margin of error will grow. Um, but this is just to sort of give you an idea of how accurate this, the survey is overall. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty good. So the most important thing uh, that came out of the analysis was realizing that although we asked 
very specifically about a certain type of chaplain. Um, that is not necessarily how folks read it. So it's it's important to, to clarify how we asked it and, and sort of get that explanation uh, set away. We asked, we gave this introductory text for our questions on chaplaincy. By chaplains, we mean clergy or other religious guides or spiritual caregivers who serve people outside of churches or other houses of worship in settings such as hospitals, the military, prisons, or institutions of higher education, to name a few examples. Um, I stress this because the first thing we found was that folks counted churches. We did give that an option in the settings that we, where we asked, where did you meet the chaplain? Bunch said church. So when we decided to analyze when we started to analyze the data, um, one of the first decisions we had to make was to decide to not count the people who said they met the chaplain in church. We just thought it was very unlikely um, that these folks were actually talking about a chaplain as we defined it for the survey. We decided to look at recent interactions, which we decide, um, defined as being interactions with the chaplain in the past five years. So this is uh, the first set of numbers throughout the report, our interactions, a chaplain in the last five years. And we found that 14% of US adults uh, have interacted with a chaplain in the last five years. We also looked at all interactions. So if you had ever, any time in your life, interacted with the chaplain, um, that set of numbers is in the report as well. And we find that 25% of US adults uh, reported ever interacting with the chaplain. And for you stats nerds out there, uh, we conducted this analysis in SPSS. As a point of interest, if we had counted interactions in church, it would have overwhelmed our data. 42% um, of all the people who answered the question, yes, I've interacted with the chaplain, then went on to tell us that the interaction happened in church. So that's almost half. That's just a, a huge and, as I said, overwhelming number. So if we had included those church folks, instead of 25% of the population having ever interacted with the chaplain, we would be dealing with 44% of the population that had ever interacted with a chaplain. And we just felt um, that that would distort our numbers in a, in a really uh, difficult way. So although we cannot rule out that some of these folks had a chaplain employed at their church, knew a chaplain from church, um, it just was not something we were able to include in the analysis. So as promised, uh, here are the sort of headlines from the survey. Um, I have eight things we learned and then one question to kick around with our panelists. The first thing we learned is that most interactions take place in healthcare settings. And here you have a table that lists all the contexts that we asked about. Did you meet a chaplain in healthcare, hospice, military service? And this is one of the tables directly from the report. It breaks it down, contact that you had with the chaplain in the past five years, contact ever. And as you can see in this table, and you'll see in all the tables throughout the report, there's very little difference between the folks who had contact in the past five years and the people who ever had contact. So we don't feel like recent contact is overly distorted by COVID. We don't feel like there's too much of a telescope effect where people are remembering things differently in the past and the distant past and the near past. These numbers are very similar. Um, but we do present all of them just so that you can, you know, learn, learn about the data and make your own decisions about that. 
So uh, most of the interactions take place in healthcare settings. Um, if you combine the categories of hospital, healthcare setting, palliative care, and hospice, that is 48% of recent contacts. Uh, this is not unexpected. What was a little unexpected to me personally, and I am new to this, so maybe it wasn't, wasn't unexpected to our panelists, was the large number of people who said that they had contact with a chaplain in an other setting. So a full 31% of recent contacts said that they met a chaplain somewhere we did not think to list on the survey or did not think was significant enough to list on the survey. Uh, the second headline, most people were contacted by the chaplain rather than requesting the chaplain. Um, this is interesting, again, to me, because of this other category. We asked, did you initiate the contact? Did the chaplain initiate the contact? Was the chaplain referred to you? But 21% had some other way that they were contacted or contacted the chaplain. Um, this, this is interesting, I think, because it doesn't really fit in with some of our ideas of a chaplain doing a rounds in a hospital or a patient knowing or a patient or a service member or a um you know victim in a police station requesting a chaplain uh, but also doesn't have the chaplain making that contact it got a little convoluted there but that but that just speaks to the sort of surprise i felt when like oh 21 percent other what's going on there so that that's an area for future investigation that i think is is really intriguing um, we asked respondents to select, and they could select more than one, this was actually presented as five different options, uh, what roles they held when they interacted with the chaplain. Were you the primary recipient of the chaplain's care or support, visiting, caregiver, participant in a religious ceremony, or an employee interacting with the chaplain in the course of your job? Most people were primary recipients of the chaplain's care or support, um, but many were also visitors or caregivers. Uh, across the board, chaplain interactions were considered valuable and helpful. We asked two separate questions about this. How valuable was your interaction with the chaplain? And would you describe your interaction with the chaplain as more helpful than harmful or the inverse? Um, contact in the past five years, 84% combined said very or moderately valuable. Chaplains are doing work that, that people in, in a moment of crisis or even as we found from interviews and just regular interactions um, find indispensable in their spiritual lives. Uh, likewise, these, these interactions are considered to be very helpful. Um, Chaplains provided, we asked about eight different types of support, um, and chaplains mainly provided four types of support. So here I presented the numbers just for the past five years, um, honestly, because the table got too big to fit onto the PowerPoint slide. So uh, virtually everyone um, felt that the chaplain supported them by listening to them or to others present. That happened in 91% of chaplain interactions. 91% said the chaplain prayed with or for you or others. 86% said the chaplain gave spiritual or religious guidance. And 86% comforted um, the recipient or others in a time of need. We asked about other types of support, such as providing um, access to resources, advocating for you, resolving conflict, and providing religious objects. Um, these had uh, 20 to 40%, depending on the population of people who said that this was part of their interaction. So there is data in the report about um, other types of support chaplains provide, 
but but this is really the headline. Um, item number six that was really noteworthy: no one topic dominated discussions with the chaplain. So we asked about, um, I think, twelve different things that could have been discussed with the chaplain, and uh, really, there are only slight majorities in four of the categories. Um, the only categories that came out to more than 50% of interaction of being discussed in more than 50% of interactions in the last five years were dealing with loss, uh, mental or emotional health, death and dying, and dealing with change. Um, we some, you know, somewhat expected that yes, death and dying and dealing with loss were going to be topics that were, were common with chaplains. Um, but you know, I think as as our panelists will will illuminate that then maybe we expected some of these other areas to to be uh, more striking in in how often they were discussed. Um, item number seven that I want to highlight: most respondents reported that the chapler had similar beliefs to them, and I want to stress that we have absolutely no way of knowing if this is true or not. Uh, the question we posed was: as far as you know. Were the chaplain's religious beliefs similar to yours or different than yours? And a lot of people, 71% um, of people said, oh yeah, they we had similar beliefs. That's really incredible if they did all have similar beliefs in, in, in a very religiously diverse, religiously plural nation where um, a lot of folks under the age of 30 and 40 don't have uh, articulated religious beliefs. Um, so this either is speaking to uh, a group that happened to have similar beliefs to a chaplain or to a chaplain's ability to connect with folks regardless of whether or not they shared literally the same beliefs. And then the last um, sort of headline from the report that I want to pull out and share with you today is that there were missed opportunities for chaplaincy in the last 12 months. And this is different than the other uh, questions I've reviewed today because we were asking retrospective questions about when you really did interact with a chaplain for, for the other seven points. Um, here, we didn't consider if you had ever interacted with a chaplain. We only considered did you ex have experience a life-changing event in the last 12 months? And was there a time in the last 12 months when you would have liked to interact with a chaplain but were unable to do so? So this is not a reflection of who actually interacted with the chaplain. This is not uh, a rate at which people were able to access a chaplain. This is who had something happen to them that may be aligned with the fact that they're now expressing a need saying, wow, I really wish I had had a chaplain. Um, the lowest rate of, of people who said that they had experienced an event and also would have liked to interact with the chaplain but were unable to do so uh, was people who experienced the death of a loved one. Um, this is important because it probably indicates to my way of thinking about it that chaplains are consistently available at times um, when when a death is is near and, and approaching. So folks who had experienced the death of a loved one were not likely to say, oh, I, I really wish there had been a chaplain, but there, there wasn't one. 
in all these other cases, though, um, all these other big life-changing events, uh, we know that chaplains are not as likely to be at hand. And even though we're looking at very, very small sample sizes, just just only 23 people who got married and 14 people who got divorced. So I wanna stress very tiny sample sizes. It is interesting that higher rates of these folks did, did say, wow, I really would have liked to have a chaplain available and it, and it was not available to me. So I think this is a useful framework for imagining how we're going to um, create possibilities for chaplaincy in the future. And then the last uh, thing I want to share that, that's in the overview report that's being released today, um, there's a remaining question that's, we're just like, where are all the female chaplains? Um, of contact in the past five years, only 21% of uh, people who had had contact with a chaplain said that the chaplain was female. And we you know, know that that is probably not representative of, of the actual population of US chaplains. So I'd love to hear from their panelists why, why they think this number is um, just so surprisingly low. And then uh, last thing I have to say is just where is this going forward? Um, we're doing interviews now. We're going to contact survey respondents uh, to do a total of 50 qualitative interviews to follow up. We've done 40. Most are with people who met a chaplain outside of church, but we're also contacting a few of the church folks to say, yeah, what was this a chaplain? How And, and what kind of experience was it? Um, so those papers will be coming out. Looking forward to releasing that. The interview stories have been really intriguing. Um, it enriches the data. I wouldn't say it, it dismisses anything I've said today. It just adds a lot of nuance and complexity that's going to be really fun to dig into. Thank you very much, Amy. Uh, the the what you have shared here, of course, is, is only part of what folks can read. If they if they download the report, we'll put a link to that in the chat towards the end of the of the webinar. Uh, but thank you very much. Uh, we're we're really grateful for your you know not only your analysis, but you're able to distill it and uh, and present it here for us today. So thank you. Uh, I want to turn now to our panelists, all of whom will respond from a variety of capacities, because depending on who you are, you're gonna read this report in different ways and what it means for the job that you do. So let's turn first to Marilyn Barnes, uh, Director of Pastoral Care at uh, VCU Health. Marilyn, your thoughts and reactions here. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Amy. Uh, so I actually have two roles. So I'm the Director of the Spiritual Care Department at VCU Health, as Michael has said, and I'm also the chair of the patient counseling department at VCU. So train chaplains as well as lead chaplains. And that's uh, the approach that I'm taking to this report. And I'm also a board certified chaplain. And as that, I will say that the results are motivating, disappointing, intriguing, captivating as well. Um, and I, I, as I was going through it, I really wish that um, the explanatory text had shared that chaplains were spiritual or religious guides or caregivers. I believe the clergy word um, attaches us to Christian-centric um, language. And as chaplains and the vocation, we're broader than that. And introducing that 
um, clergy word, I, I can see why um, the respondents attached that to uh, church. The other thing that as I was going through the report was the word harmful. And I was wondering why we didn't use, if you will, helpful or not helpful uh, versus harmful. That, that harmful has a different level of meaning and could have been leading to the respondents. I did appreciate when we looked at the meaning of chaplaincy inter, um, interactions, how it aligned with the chaplaincy taxonomy, the normative language for chaplains, uh, with the top five that Amy uh, just uh, finished reviewing, and the active listening as chaplains, we know that that is uh, definitely our wheelhouse and a tool in our toolbox, and then prayer, and asking those guided questions about culture, religion, values, faith, purpose, and then identifying supportive relationships for me mapped to those top five when we were talking, um, when I look at the chaplaincy taxonomy that's used. And then the confusion um, of faith leaders and chaplains uh, just continues to be ongoing. I mean, even to the point where uh, we have faith leaders or those who, are, who retire from uh, the parish say that their default now is chaplaincy versus those of us who went straight into chaplaincy and see that as an equivalent uh, vocation, if you will. And for me, I believe that we need to change the narrative of who chaplains are and what chaplains do and move from a uh, Christian-centric, Protestant-centric uh, to a spiritual and value-based focus. And I believe that this report does demonstrate that. And so a chaplain, we would see them as a resource providing emotional and spiritual support and getting folks in healthcare to refer and don't ask. When you ask someone would they like to see the chaplain, generally they're gonna say no, because they think that something is wrong versus having a chaplain be seen as that guide and that companion. And I believe that type of education and engagement needs to happen in academia. When we are training providers, that is when they should be receiving this information and having those types of experiences. Here at VCU Health, we have our chaplain residents as well as our chaplains are very integrated with the School of Medicine, the School of Dentistry, the School of Nursing and partnering with uh, those um, training uh, areas to help integrate spirituality and religiosity. And then also um, when I'm talking about changing the narrative is normalizing chaplaincy in all settings and not just healthcare. So that connection to spirit, that inner voice, if that's what you call it, that value system and looking at how to do that within the community and how, uh, so when you come into the hospital or you're in some other professional organization or social organization and they have a chaplain to not see them as a faith leader, yet to see them as that uh, companion on that part of the journey that connects with you and guides you as, as you, um, with your spirituality, your religiosity, your values, if you will. And those positive coping skills, um, that may link to those areas. And then when I'm also looking at the report, I thought about the area of education. 
and how we train the next set of uh, chaplains. And um, moving away from everyone needs to have seminary training, which I know is not necessarily popular, uh, to how do we in, ensure that there is a broad understanding of chaplaincy, of the vocation, of what it means to uh, integrate DE&I, diversity, equity, and inclusion, to integrate the social determinants of health, because that's important when we are uh, coming alongside others who are maybe in crisis or who may be um, just on their general uh, journey. And then how do we focus on the alignment of clinical pastoral education and certification uh, outcomes and certification competencies so that the training process is seamless and is inclusive. Uh, also, when we think about community-based chaplaincy, how we have a chaplain um, in uh, social organizations, in um, the, the YMCA, Boys and Girls Club, that person who is that, again, connection, that guide, not only for the participants, yet for the staff as well. And to place that in a societal context so that a, a chaplain is not there for all of the bad things or when someone is in crisis. And from a healthcare perspective, because that's what I do a lot of, is how do we have the chaplain be in that ambulatory setting? So when you come in for your wellness visit, you are asked spiritual distress screening questions the way we do depression screening. And if you answer yes to a question, it generates a referral. And then that referral would uh, go to a chaplain. Similar to you go to a cardiologist, an oncologist, a nephrologist, it would be the same type of um, Con, uh, connectivity, if you will, cont continuum of care, if you will. And then um, I would lastly like to say with my time that um, as a leader and an educator, I would really like to see um, the survey that engages more with chaplain language and to um, talk about the demand of chaplaincy versus the more clergy religious language. And I understand that this is part of a larger study, the role of religion uh, in society project. And yet I would say religion is one thing, spirituality is something else. And we know that there are many who are spiritual yet not religious. And how do we ensure that we are being inclusive? So I look forward to uh, the discussion with the other panelists and hearing their thoughts and as well engaging with the participants. And I'll hand it back over to you, Michael. Thank you very much, Marilyn. Taylor, let's turn to you. Okay, hello everyone. Uh, greetings from South Africa, where I'm currently here doing some research. Um, so I am speaking today um, as a sociologist, as well as a practitioner with experiences in healthcare, um, chaplaincy, military settings, as well as correctional settings. And I'm just, I wanna give a little background to help, to help share how the filter through which I'm looking at these data. 
Um, so I did my clinical pastoral education uh, units in Canada, where the approach, like in many locations in the U.S., is similar to what they call spiritually integrated psychotherapy. So really helping individuals connect to what gives them meaning in their lives and taking a client-centered approach. Um, so looking at spirituality on their terms and catering to their specific needs that might not be traditionally religious. So, so those two perspectives as a sociologist, as well as a practitioner, will be um, guiding my comments today. So the first thing when I read the report was that I think this is wonderful addition to our knowledge on this topic. Um, I remember a few years ago when we did the, um, the first nationally representative survey on chaplaincy in America with the, it was a 2019 National Opinion Research Center uh, survey. And this really helps us sort of understand chaplaincy's place in American society and how it relates to other trends in religious life. So when we look back at that um, 2019 survey, we found that 21% of the respondents had um, contact with chaplains in the last two years, which is very similar uh, in some ways to what we're seeing here, where we saw that 25% had had uh, interactions with chaplains. But what's interesting is the respondents in this, in this survey are saying that it seemed that only 14% had contact in the last five years. So that could be a memory question, a COVID question. So, so that's something that came up. And I was wondering about it perhaps people were less likely or unable to see chaplains during the pandemic. The other similarity, um, and this is where I was grateful that the language was very similar um, between the two surveys, was that in 2019, 45% of respondents who had interacted with chaplains, 45% um, said the experience was very valuable. Um, compared to this survey where 55% of people who had interacted with chaplains in the last five years found it very valuable um, and 44% of who had interacted with them um, anytime ever. So again, we're seeing high rates of people finding this very valuable and actually an increase in people finding it valuable in who have seen chaplains in the last five years. So this could be that people who saw COVID chaplains during COVID were extremely grateful for the support, um, or it could be that people who saw chaplains long ago, they, they remember it as being less valuable. Similarly, when we look at healthcare settings to before the pandemic or during um, or the last five years, what's interesting is that in 2000, the 2019 survey, 57% of respondents had um, seen a chaplain in a healthcare setting. And in this survey, it's, it's similar if you also include um, palliative care. But what was really interesting for me as someone who spent time with the military is that we actually learned in this survey about um, experiences interacting with chaplains in the military. And, and we saw in as as we reviewed that 11% um, of respondents had interacted with chaplains in the military setting in, in the last five years and 8% overall, which is slightly larger um, than the 7% of Americans who have served, uh, who served according to the 2018 census. So what, what was striking actually for me was, it was interesting to see this, this number that outside of the healthcare setting, this was the second place where people were most likely to be interacting with chaplains. Um, 
but I thought it was interesting that only 20% of the people um, in the military, respondents who said they had been in the military, um, said they had contact with chaplains. And, and this made me think about how we think about the term interaction. Is it a personal interaction where I'm speaking with a chaplain or I'm sitting with a parent or a child who's, who's receiving support? Or is it being part of a parade and hearing a prayer? Is it being in the same vicinity as a chaplain, thinking about that interaction? Because in military settings, chaplains are very, are very common and participate in a lot of events. Um, and as we mentioned, the really high other category brings to mind the question of what chaplaincy looks like outside of these institutional settings. What are the possibilities for chaplaincy in everyday life outside of hospitals, outside of the military, outside of the workplaces, um, which is something that, that I'm very interested in and will be continuing to reflect on a bit in my comments. So that's enough of comparison between the surveys, but I thought it was interesting to see where we've been and perhaps where we're going. Some other things that popped up to me as I reviewed the report was that there were high rates of referrals, which I didn't find super surprising, but I thought it was interesting that 21% um, of the people who had requested to see chaplains in the last five years, people who had interacted with them in the last five years, requested to see them. Um, and I think this is, in, this is really interesting because even if we are getting some conflation with church leaders, it again is showing that people are seeking guidance in challenging times and they're looking for support from someone who can help them navigate these challenges. Um, and again, for the other, for the non-referrals, for the non-requests, it could, you know, again, what if the chaplain just, just happens to be there. And, and when we think about the valuableness of the interaction, um, it also asks, it all, the question also comes to mind about um, if, if people find the interactions more valuable if they requested to see the chaplain versus if the chaplain just came, perhaps it was seen as less helpful or even harmful or intrusive. So breaking down the ways people encounter chaplains and then the whether they find it valuable, I think is another interesting place for inquiry. And, and when it comes to these referrals and, um, and requests, it, it's also interesting what popped out to me as well was that um, the sort of extending circles of care that chaplains are engaging with that for 56% of people and 45% of people in the last four years mentioned that they were secondary, respectively secondary people who received care or caregivers to the person receiving care. So it's not just the person in the hospital, the military or prison that needs support, but it's also those that are supporting them. So seeing how chaplains are bringing community. And, and the last thing I wanna share is that given my approach with, with chaplaincy as spiritually integrated, a form of spiritually integrated psychotherapy and thinking about really client-centered approach, I found it very, um, heartwarming. I was happy to see that, you know, the number one, uh, the highest percentage of people mentioned that listening to you or others was what the chaplain provided to them. 
And I expected to see prayer and spiritual and religious guidance, but it but it's really important to me to see, you know, the listening, the giving comfort in times of need. And also there, there was quite a few people who mentioned that the chaplain advocated for them and also directed them to other resources. So seeing chaplains as providing care beyond just the religious box, I think is really important and showing the ways they're meeting people's emotional and spiritual needs. And again, this comes up in the idea of, you know, chaplains were useful for helping people deal with loss, but they were also important for mental and emotional health and dealing with change. And uh, these are showing that even outside of hospitals or the settings where people usually see chaplains, there's this, there's this need for them and value in them being there as, as spiritual guides. And the chaplains were seen by a large number of participants as being compassionate, good listeners, helpful, trustworthy. And, and I think this is a sign of, of good training as well, that people are associating chaplains with these, with these um, traits, and very few people are seeing them as intrusive or condescending, which again could go back to the question of request versus referral and feeling agency in choosing when to speak with a chaplain. So I'll just stop there. Um, to, I find these I find these findings to be very promising and exciting for areas of future inquiry, as well as showing us what we're really doing right um, and can think about moving forward. So thank you. Thank you very much, Taylor. A few people have asked questions, and I want to note that we'll put a link to the report uh, in the chat and here in a few minutes. Um, it's it's on our website now, so we'll make sure that everybody has a copy of that, and you can see the uh, the method and, and all of that information. And then finally, Jessica coming to us from the University of Arizona, who's been a wonderful help with us on this survey from the beginning. Uh, where How do you see this from the perspective of a data scientist? Yeah, well, first of all, just thanks everyone for being here today to talk about this work. Um, you know, like Amy said, it's been a real pleasure to just work with the Brandeis team to conduct and analyze this survey, and we've been thinking about it a lot. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to share the overview and hear people's thoughts on it. And um, I just wanted to mention, you know, I, I led the survey development efforts with tons of input from the team, from the advisory board, from an additional smaller advisory group for the survey development itself. So lots of really fantastic input that we're really grateful for. But ultimately, you can blame me for any shortcomings um, because I made final decisions about the survey. So, um, you know, in that, in that light, um, I just kind of wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the challenges of conducting a survey on the topic of chaplaincy and you know the discussion so far has touched on some of this and I just want to kind of spell out a few things directly um, you know one thing is that just by the nature of much of the work that chaplains are doing we're already missing a couple of large segments of the population of people who interact with chaplains and that's people who are incarcerated and uh, people who have died. And, you know, it's really difficult to survey the former and impossible to survey the latter. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to note that, that those are those are folks who really benefit a lot from chaplaincy. Um, but even without those two segments of the population who we would expect to make up a large proportion of the recipients of chaplain care, you know, a quarter of U.S. adults tell us that they've interacted with a chaplain outside the context of a church or other place of worship. So in the context of identifying the demand for chaplaincy, which is what we're trying to do with this survey, um, I, I think that's a substantial portion of the general public who are having the kinds of interactions we're interested in learning more about. 
A second challenge, um, you know, and, and one that's been mentioned here a couple of times already is that aside from chaplains themselves or people who study chaplains, many people don't make the distinction between chaplains and other religious leaders. You know, as Amy mentioned, there's a group of respondents who told us they interacted with a chaplain in the context of a church or place of worship who we excluded from the contact group for the purposes of this analysis. Um, and this is after we spent some significant real estate on the survey questionnaire defining what we meant by chaplains. And you know, as, as Marilyn alluded to, um, we know that even among people who identify themselves as chaplains, there isn't always agreement on what that word means. So it's not surprising that there's not always a crystal clear understanding of the term among the general public. But I think it's an important finding in and of itself. And I think it's an important part of identifying the demand for chaplaincy. You know, what we're able to identify from the survey is that many people, upwards of 40%, are describing moments in their lives when a chaplain could provide care and support in various ways, even if it wasn't actually a chaplain that they interacted with, even if, you know, what they're telling us about isn't an interaction with their pastor after worship service or something like that. Um, and a third challenge is something that both Amy and Taylor touched on, and it's that we conducted this survey in the context of a global pandemic, and it's hard to say exactly how this affected our results. You know, on the one hand, this might have led to more opportunity to interact with a chaplain, um, you know, with large numbers of Americans hospitalized for and or dying from COVID-19, the chance that a person was either personally affected by this or had loved ones in these scenarios was almost certainly higher during the pandemic, especially during that first year or so than before the pandemic. But on the other hand, many people didn't interact with other people outside their households for months um, at a time. So even if a loved one was in the hospital, there was a period of time where visitors weren't allowed inside in many places. So it's hard to say whether the share of people who had contact with a chaplain would have been higher or lower had we conducted this survey before the pandemic, and whether the nature of those interactions would have been different in some ways. I think the context of the pandemic is reflected at least to some degree in that more than half of respondents who interacted with a chaplain in the past few years said that they had discussed things like dealing with loss, dealing with change, death and dying, their mental uh, or emotional health. Um, and among those who said there was a time when they would have liked to interact with a chaplain but could not, the most common reason provided was that their interactions were um, limited during the pandemic, their interactions with others. So all this is to say that I think it's important that we acknowledge you know, the context of the pandemic um, but the demand for chaplaincy exists in this broader context as well. So I don't see it as a limitation so much as, you know, something that um, is hard to measure the, if the effect of it. Um, all in all, while there are some challenges in carrying out a survey on people's experiences with chaplains, I think we've arrived at a really rich first look at this topic. Um, you know, at least a quarter of U.S. adults have had a recent interaction with a chaplain. Um, and the vast majority of them have positive things to say about those interactions. Um, so those are kind of my, my uh, initial thoughts on this. I wanted to just respond to a couple of things that Marilyn and Taylor um, brought up. Um, Taylor mentioned the pilot survey uh, that was run through NORC in 2019. And um, that survey was only the three questions, you know, about have you had an interaction, how valuable was it, and um, was it in a healthcare context or another context. Um, and so it's it was definitely our starting point, and it's interesting to think about how our results now compare to then. But um, I just want to note that it's it is a very different 
um, survey, we changed the initial question a little bit to try and specify more what we meant by a chaplain. We changed the time period from the past two years to the past year, and then had um, successive questions after that to catch uh, interactions that happened longer ago. Um, like we just mentioned, it, it, it occurred in the context of a pandemic. Um, this survey goes much deeper into among people who had those interactions, what were the interactions like, in what context did they take place, and things like that. So um, while it, it gave us a really great starting point, it's not exactly an apples to apples comparison um, from one to the other. Um, Let's see what else I wanted to respond to. Um, Marilyn, you brought up um, why did we ask about whether it was helpful or harmful instead of helpful or not helpful? And I think that's a, a valid point. You know, I think you're absolutely right that harmful is a much stronger um, way to ask about it than not helpful. And I think our reasoning in the group of people who were um, helping to develop the questionnaire is that uh, we were already asking how valuable was it, if at all, in which case you could say it was not valuable. And we wanted to create an opportunity for um, if somebody had a bad experience, not just a not good experience, um, an opportunity for them to express that. I think in a survey like this, it's easier to talk about the positives about um, a religious leader than it is to talk about the negatives. So it, it is certainly a much stronger um, way of asking about it. And I think that was intentional. Um, and Marilyn, you also talked about, you know, cha changing the narrative of who chaplains are and what they do. And I think, you know, that's something that kind of will happen from the top down. But uh, this survey gives us some insight into the fact that the, the terminology and the language and talking about these things um, doesn't permeate the general public, I think, for a long time. And so while these conversations are happening among um, practitioners, um, it'll take a while to translate to the general public. Um, and just in terms of using more language of chaplaincy in the survey itself, um, I think those things are related. You know, what we want to know is what the general public is experiencing. And so we tried to ask questions about the kinds of things that chaplains do um, in order to try and tease some of this out um, without expecting people to know the terminology necessarily that's used by the practitioner. So um, I, I just found it super valuable to have both Marilyn and Taylor um, weigh in on some of this. Um, you know, I'm a survey expert, but not a chaplaincy expert. So I really appreciate um, all this added context. Thanks, you guys. As I said at the beginning, everyone's coming at this from a very different perspective. And so we're really grateful to think about this in different ways, not just how you know each of us might read it individually. So as I also mentioned at the beginning, this is one part of a much larger project that we're doing with the Templeton Religion Trust on society and American uh, religion in society, not society in American life. Uh, and so I want to invite uh, Wendy Kedge, the lab's founder, the director of this project, uh, to just give us a little bit of insight on where does this fit in with the overall project and where do we go from here? Uh, what do we do with this information, essentially? Sure. Thank you, Michael and Marilyn, Amy, Taylor, Jessica. Thank you all for your contributions. This has truly been a team effort, and it's, been, it's great to have a chance to be with all of you on this webinar. Um, we're really grateful to the Templeton Religion Trust for making it possible for us to do this survey. The small survey we did in 2019 had only three questions because we didn't have very much money, and this longer survey is what we wanted to do then and are thrilled to have the data from now. 
as you're hearing in all the feedback, no survey instrument is perfect. And we're always trying to approximate as best we can what people's experiences are with chaplains and how we, what and how we can strengthen those sorts of relationships. So this is one piece of a three-part project that we're doing. The first piece was looking at how chaplains are trained. And there's a working paper on our website about the supply of chaplains, sort of trying to understand what the training and preparation prepares chaplains to do, talking to theological schools and clinical training programs, a range of stakeholders. This survey and the follow-up interviews that Amy mentioned are ongoing is about demand. It's really trying to understand from people on the ground what their experiences are of chaplains. Do they know what the term is? What, how and in, in what ways have they engaged? And so we're finishing that and engaged in those conversations now. The third and perhaps most important piece is to understand the gap, which is really to ask a big question about whether chaplains are being prepared to do the work that people want and need them to do on the ground. If the language and terminology around the concept of chaplaincy is recognizable to people, if there are ways that we could think about this systemically to try to better serve people on the ground. So the gap analysis will be the third piece of this, also a working paper that will be on our website. And as in all things, we're looking to try to figure out how to make sure chaplains and spiritual care providers are best trained to do the work that's needed on the ground to help relieve too much of the suffering that's around us. I'm gonna stop there so we can take some questions in the time we have left and just thank you again to Michael and to the panelists and to everyone who was involved uh, with this project. Thank you, Wendy. Uh, as promised, there is a link to the report now in the chat so you can go and find it there you can download it's just a pdf so nothing fancy there uh and brent i see your question there is is there something on the website related to this project the answer is yes if you click that link that i just put in there that will take you to uh not only this report but also a link to the larger project uh that is that is underway so we have plenty of time well we have eight minutes i should say uh for q a here so any questions that you might have Put them in into the Q&A function down at the bottom of your screen, and then I'm just going to look through chat quickly because I think there were a couple of questions uh, that are in here as well, or questions that were asked and then answered privately. I want to make sure everyone can benefit from that as well. So one person says, uh, were VA patients part of this survey? The answer is yes. Uh, and if there was an obvious distinction between uh, interacting with a chaplain in the VA as either VA or healthcare since we're kind of overlapping there. Uh, and as Amy noted, there was a difference there, but it was a very small number of people reporting contact with chaplains in the actual VA uh, setting. Uh, Barbara comments to Marilyn that she is piloting a chaplain presence in a food pantry in rural Northern Michigan. That is a very specific, but wonderful place, I think, to put chaplains in. Barbara, I hope that uh, that you have ways you can share with us how that maybe uh, might be successful here moving forward. Uh, Jeff says, thank you for performing this survey. I've never been a pastor and don't think I will. So uh, the distinction between clergy and chaplain is really important. You know, I know that we've we've touched on this a number of times over the course of, uh, of the webinar, but this is such a, a vital issue, is the one of language between how people recognize religious leadership now and what the reality of it is with chaplaincy. We have this problem all the time. It's not just on surveys, but I think anytime those of us in the lab talk with people uh, about chaplaincy, they immediately turn to what we call the Father Mulcahy model, the guy from MASH wearing a collar, uh, usually a, a white Christian male, 
for a lot of people, that's still what the word chaplain conjures in their head. And of course, that's not that's not true anymore, uh, if it ever was really true in the past. And so we're trying to, to help move the needle on that a little bit. Uh, David says the title chaplain, that even the word itself, has been debated for years. Do we have an opinion on the title of spiritual care provider? Uh, I'll open it to our panelists to say, I will say I do have an opinion. I think spiritual care provider is great. I think it gets around some of those problems uh, that, that I just mentioned. The problem is it's a mouthful <laughs> and you sort of lose uh, you sort of lose the the personal connection that, that the word chaplain can sometimes entail. So you're right. I would agree totally that uh, the language is problematic, but we got to find something that connects with people immediately. I can just mention, I also like the term spiritual care provider. And one thing that I found really exciting about the survey results was that actually like 20% of people said they didn't even know what their um, chaplain or spiritual care providers religion was, or, and they didn't know if they had similar beliefs, which I thought was actually a really great sign, because it, it should be about the person not about the spiritual care provider. And I think sometimes the terms we use and the way we can move away from sort of a Christian centric lens of chaplaincy is, is very helpful. Thank you for pulling that out, Taylor. I agree with, um, I, when I looked at those results, I was thinking, well, how did they know that they were similar or not similar? It's, it's for me as a chaplain, when I interact with someone, it's about them and not about me. So I could interact with someone who is a totally different faith from myself, but they feel that I am because they feel a connection, right? Uh, when it comes to David's question and spiritual care provider, I think it's helpful. Uh, chaplain has been, of course, a debate for years. I would say right now, chaplain is our profession. And for me, it's looking at how do we evolve our profession, not changing a name. You keeping a name and changing how people see what we do before we start trying to change the name and then change what we do all at the same time. It really is a, a, a difficult kind of position to be in because when you say chaplain, a lot of people think there is something different about it. Um, you're not saying any other terms we could use that are more traditional, you know, priest, imam, rabbi, whatever you're saying, chaplain. Uh, but it's the distinction gets a little fuzzy. This is Wendy. I might add one more piece of that, which is this question about you know, chaplain, pastor, in church, out of church. When we first got the results that showed large numbers of people saying they met the chaplain at church, we we were curious about them and wondered if that was indeed the case. I saw some comments of people asking about, you know, chaplains who are quite involved with their churches, and maybe those were people that individuals are reporting on. And that's what we've been able in the follow-up interviews to tease out. And so in almost all of the follow-up interviews, as we have heard the uh, more in more detail about the people that respondents met at church and what their interactions were they and we have tried to figure out in almost all of the cases they are not chaplains so i just want people to hear clearly that it's very possible that people meet chaplains at church and by doing the interviews we were able to hear if that's what we thought was happening and in most cases almost all cases um, it was not 
that's not what was happening. They were talking about their clergy person, but then we thought, well, maybe the clergy person is a chaplain on the side, but as we continue to interrogate that, we don't think that that's the case. So um, I just want to sort of name, and I think it's really important for the profession to think about how to name and share and articulate what they do, because um, you know the, the average person on the street, at least based on these survey findings, probably doesn't quite understand it. And that's you know a bigger nut to continue to try to crack together. Thank you, Wendy. Well, we're right here at 12.59. I don't want to run the risk of, of taking advantage of anyone's time if we start another question here. Uh, so thank you all for joining us, the, to our audience, our community, uh, to the panelists especially. Uh, we really appreciate your time and your expertise. Uh, this is an important project, and we are certainly not of the mind that we've said all there is to say, and now we're done. Uh, this is one moment in time. This is 2022, and so we will keep looking at this and keep studying this in the future. Uh, I encourage you, check out the rest that we have to offer, chaplaincyinnovation.org. Lots of webinars, newsletter. You can join us on Facebook. There are lots of ways to get involved, so please do that. Thank you all, and have a great afternoon. Bye-bye.